Hello everyone, hello listeners, and welcome to the OCR Geology podcast. Um, My name is Ethan, I will be your host throughout this learning journey. Um, I'm of course taking um, OCR Geology as an A-level. I'm also taking Geography and Environmental Science, and I'm super passionate about the subjects I'm taking. Um, Why have I decided to start this podcast? Well, um, this is this this is going to be mainly for me. Um, I I love revising from things that I've spoken out loud, um. But hopefully, you guys can take snippets of information from this, and do your own revision from it. Um, l- like I've said, I am a student. You know, I am prone to making mistakes. Uh, I'm still learning. However, I am going to try to to be the best um, I can be and all the information I give you will hopefully be accurate. Let's first have a look at the composition of the earth. This is 6.5 page 128 in the textbook. Um, we are starting with something called Goldschmidt's classification. Um, so in the periodic table, as we all know from our, our, our GCSE science, um, there was a man called Victor Goldschmidt who grouped elements according to how they occur in the earth. And he grouped these elements into four key categories. We have the lithophiles, the siderophiles, the calcophiles and the apophiles. Now, from the first bits of the words, you can probably guess what they are, but just in case, the lithophiles are rock-loving, the siderophiles are iron-loving, the calcophiles are ore-loving, and the atmophiles, well, they're gas-loving. Compared with other planets in our solar system, ours is medium-sized, but it is the densest. Not only is our Earth the densest in the solar system, um, we also have a sort of layered structure that is going on on the inside. Um, If we take the proto-Earth, which is sort of like an early version of our Earth before it fully formed, as a sort of loose collection of all the possible elements that that are are in our ground, um, some of these elements reacted with other elements to form compounds such as oxides and sulfides. You've probably heard of them before. Um, with these oxides, sulfides and other elements, we had a differentiation that was caused by gravity. Um, denser compounds moved inwards and lighter compounds moved outwards. This is because as the denser compounds move inwards, the lighter compounds were displaced, which cause them to move outwards. Um, From the lowest density to the highest density, we have atmophiles, lithophiles, calcophiles and siderophiles. Um, Atmophiles are obviously found in the atmosphere in the hydrosphere. Lithophiles are found in rocks near the surface. Calcophiles are found in rocks below the surface and siderophiles are found at rocks at depth. We can sort of think of it as the atmosphere being at the top and the siderophiles being all the way at the bottom near the core. How did we get all these elements though? Let's have a look at meteorites. Um, The siderophiles in iron meteorites, which are of course, as we know, iron loving, may be equivalent to the composition of the Earth's core. 
Um, assumed that they haven't changed composition since formation because they haven't been subjected to lithospheric processing, such as, you know, weathering metamorphism. Um, meteorites' evidence suggests that the Earth's core is made principally of iron and nickel. Now, you know, we, we obviously can't dig all the way to the core because, you know, we'd burn up and die. But um, by using meteorites, we can deduce the composition of our core. Um, just a little um, key word, we have something called plastic deformation that, that goes on. This is permanent change or distortion in a material when it's been subjected to either tensile, compressive or bending stresses. Let's now move on to look at the upper layers of the Earth. This is where we might find the atmospheres, the lithospheres, maybe the top fringe of the calcophiles. Um, the division of the Earth, uh, the core, the mantle, the crust, you know, you've got the inner core, the outer core. We came up with these divisions of the Earth um, by looking at chemical composition. You know, we didn't just look at a map and draw random lines and go, oh, that's the core, that's the mantle, that's the crust. Um, they are actually based on chemical composition. Um, this corresponds to Goldschmidt's classification, which we talked about at the start of the podcast. Um, however, seismic surveys may suggest a different arrangement in the upper part of the Earth. This is due to um, lithospheric processes that may go on, uh, which change um, the sort of way that ores and elements are positioned in the crust. Next, let's look at 6.6, .6, which is the composition of the Earth, the direct observations. Um, we have indirect and direct observations, but we're obviously going to be looking at the direct ones. Let's start off with some key words. We have xenoliths, ophiolites and gravity. A xenolith is a fragment of foreign rock, which is included in an igneous rock that's come from a different source. Ophiolites are sections of oceanic crust and upper mantle broken off and attached to the edge of a continent during plate movement. Gravity is, we all know what gravity is, it is measured in gals. One gal is an acceleration of one centimetres per second. Now there are multiple ways we can directly observe uh, the composition of the earth. We can look at the crust beneath our feet. Um, our Earth's topography is, is, is well mapped, you know, we've had people mapping things for years and we also now have help of satellites. Um, when we analyse our surface and our, our topography, um, this can suggest what lies below the surface. Um, another way we can directly observe the composition of the Earth are looking at mines and boreholes. Um, we have direct access to high levels of the crust by mining. Uh, mining helps us explore the subsurface and, fun fact, the deepest mine is only four kilometres deep. If we think about how big our Earth is, this is barely a scratch in the surface. Um, on the other hand, boreholes can go much deeper than mines uh, and samples of rock and microfossils can be brought up to the surface. Um, another way we can use modern technology to help us with this mining and the, and the formation of boreholes is remote sensing, which can be undertaken remotely, uh, which reduces uh, human risk. Another form of direct observation of our composition is magma. 
Um, we all know where mag what magma is, where it comes from. Um, the magma that feeds volcanoes originates in the lower crust or upper mantle, and this can carry samples of the rocks from these layers to the surface. Um, for example, basaltic lava. Um, this erupts at mid-ocean ridges and it's formed by the partial melting of the upper mantle. So if we think, if we want to know what the composition of the upper mantle is, you know, we want to work out what is on that fringe from the upper to the, to, to the lower mantle, uh, we can look at this basaltic lava, which is then ejected onto the surface for us to chemically analyse. Um, a bit of a... A bit, a bit of a sidetrack, but uh, we have, we've got a bit of a basaltic fact file. Um, key fact, it's dark coloured. It is composed of plagioclase. It has a low silica content. It may also contain olivine, quartz and hornblende. Another fun fact, which is a little bit unrelated, but viscosity and silica are directly proportional. Linking back to our, our borehole um, ob observation, um, we've got a bit of a case study here. Um, it's called Project Mohole, and this is a case study of a deep borehole. Uh, it was, an, it was an, an American project that aimed to drill through the thin, thin oceanic crust into the mantle. Um, this would obviously, you know, allow us to get direct samples. Um, the drilling took place from a ship in 3,360 metre deep water off the coast of Mexico. That is a lot of water to, to, to wade through. You know, if you think about the, the scale of this project, it must have been huge. Um, our borehole actually only reached a depth, depth of 183 metres, which in comparison is pretty sad. However, we did get samples of basalt that were recovered, um, but it was eventually, as you can probably guess, it was abandoned due to increasing costs. Um, the tech developed, however, was then later used for offshore oil exploration. Um, another example of a borehole is the Kola Super Deep Borehole. Um, this, as opposed to the Americans, was a Russian project that aimed to drill 15 kilometres deep through the continental crust. Um, obviously, it was probably a little bit easier because they didn't have all this water to drill through. Um, the, the borehole was nine inches in diameter and it reached 40,000 feet deep. But, as with all, you know, projects, it was eventually stopped as the temperature gradient was too steep. So the machinery didn't it, it couldn't work properly you know it was it was hot and sweaty down there and it was just like nope i'm gonna pack it in um however it was suggested as a, as a little sidetrack it was suggested that they actually reached hell um and you can actually you can go to russia not that i'd recommend it but you could go to russia and you could you can look at the 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 um the, the manhole cover that they've just put on on top of this hole um and if you stand on top of it i'm assuming it'd be pretty cool to realize that there is a really deep hole. Now, if I was nine inches in diameter, you know, I'd slide all the way down there right to hell. Again, still talking about direct observations we make of the composition of the earth, we have something called a kimberlite pipe and kimberlite lava. Uh, now this can be a little bit of a, um, a thing to get your head around. You know, when I was sat in class, I was thinking, uh, well, I don't get this. Um, but basically, um, these are volcanoes that bring magma up from depth. 
you know, if we think about back to our basaltic lava, uh, we can analyse it as it comes from volcanoes. These kimberlite pipes are basically just super, super deep volcanoes that can allow us to get rock, um, rock samples from very deep. Um, occasionally, the igne igneous material in these volcanic slash kimberlite pipes do include diamonds, uh, which have a compact crystal structure. Um, what can, what, why? Uh, okay, Ethan, you've told us about the fact that it brings up diamonds. Why? How is that important? What does that tell us about the composition of the earth? Well, uh, diamonds crystallise under very, very high pressures um, in conditions like the, the, the one of the upper mantle, which we have concluded is 250 kilometres deep. Um, this is important, you know, we, 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 as we know how diamonds form, we can then realize how the upper mantle what the conditions of the upper mantle are like as we as we do see diamonds um the enclosing rock of the kimberlite pipe is called kimberlite um this is basically just a fancy word as as it, it originated i think it's in southern africa um kimberlite magmas form 150 kilometers deep below the earth's surface which is as i said much deeper than any other volcanic rocks and volcanoes um Again, just reiterating, it's so deep that carbon can crystallise into diamonds. Um, so in summary, kimberlite pipes, they're just explosive, sporadic volcanism um, that can help us um, observe what is very deep below, below our feet. Now on to the, the, the funny sounding words. Uh, it's an ophiolite, which I used to pronounce ophiolite, uh, but no, it is an ophiolite. Um, these are, as I said before, um, they're sections of oceanic crust and upper mantle that have been broken off and attached to the edge of a continent during plate movement. They are formed during collisions between lithospheric plates. Um, bits of oceanic crust, um, are, are, you know, they're broken off, you know, they crumble off um, and they're thrust into the edge of the continental plates. Um, these ophiolites can then be exposed by erosion. Um, you know, you, you are weathering, um, you erosion. We've all been there, done that. We, we know what's going on. Um, the section of ancient oceanic crust that has been thrust into the continental plate, which is now known as an ophiolite, can be examined on the land without the need to drill a borehole through the ocean floor. As we know with our, with our American borehole, it doesn't go very well when we're trying to drill through water. So um, this sort of um, ex exposure on land can help us identify and, and analyse them a lot easier. Um, the periodites, which is a rock um, at the base of the ophiolite, is from the upper mantle. Um, they can be seen in the Lizard Peninsula in southwest England. Um, if anyone's ever over there, uh, please drop me a message. Um, maybe maybe you'll be able to see some ophiolites. Maybe you'll see them up close and personal. Um, you know, these are millions of years old. However, they do resemble modern day oceanic crust and upper mantle. So that is something to bear in mind. So just to conclude what we've got for our direct observation of the composition of the Earth, we've got looking at the crust beneath our feet, we've got mines, we've got boreholes, we've got volcanoes that bring magma up from depth, which is our kimberlite pipes. We've got ophiolites, um, and we also have... No, that is it. That is all of them. Um, so, yeah.
can now move on to looking at indirect evidence um, of the structure of the Earth. Um, this is 6.7 in the, in the OCR geology textbook. Um, and let's ask ourselves a question before we start this page. Is there enough iron to make up the core? Well, let me tell you. The stable isotope of iron, which you don't really need to know this, but it is 54Fe, is the most common endpoint of nuclear fusion processes inside massive stars and is therefore the most abundant element in their cores. Iron is the sixth most abundant element in the universe and the most common refractory element. Um, so, in conclusion, there is absolutely no problem with finding enough of iron for the Earth's core. Um, so, let's move on to having a look at a bit of indirect evidence. Um, let's have a look at gravity surveys. Um, basic physics suggests that acceleration due to Earth's gravity is 9.81 metres per second and that gravitational detraction between two bodies depends on their masses and the squared distance between them. This would suggest that the value of gravity measured over an area of dense rock would be different to the value measured over less dense rock. Um, just a bit of a disclaimer, 9.81 metres per second is an average um, again, along with gravity surveys, we've also got gravity anomalies. Um, the value of gravity itself can't be used to identify a rock due to many variables being involved. It is more useful to plot variations in the value from place to place. These values, which are different from 9.81 metres per second, are known as gravity anomalies. Um, so, you know, we might get 9.80 or 9. Point, I don't know, 8... Eight nine, you know, um, if if this gravity anomaly is bigger, so it's bigger than nine point eight one, it's greater than expected. This means we have a positive anomaly, which means our we have a greater rock density. Just think, bigger number, bigger bigger density. It's a positive anomaly. It's all on that, you know, that that bigger add addition side. Um, on the other hand, if we've got a lower number than 9.81, um, it's lower than expected. We have a negative gravity anomaly, which means we have a lower rock density. If you remember one of them, then you've obviously sussed out the other one. Just to carry on with our gravity anomalies, we do have two different types of gravity anomalies. We have latitude and altitude. Latitude is, you know, across and altitude is um, let's start with latitude. Due to its due to the Earth's spin, um, the Earth is slightly flattened at the poles, and bulges slightly at the equator. Um, you've probably heard the phrase, you know, the Earth isn't perfectly sphere. Well, it's totally right um, because we have this latitudinal gravity anomaly that um, that that does make the poles sort of squish in, and the equator sort of bulge out. Um, <clears throat> this means the poles which are flattened, are slightly closer to the centre of mass, which means as it's closer to the centre of mass, we have a higher value for gravity um, than, it, than it is at the equator, because obviously it's closer at the poles because it's squished, and it's, it, it's smaller at the equator as it's as it bulged out away from the centre of mass. Um, <clears throat> looking at altitude, or, or it, it's also known as free air 
it's it's a free air gravity anomaly and altitudinal gravity anomaly. I do prefer altitude as it's more easy to remember with you know your latitude or altitude. Um <clears throat> let's start with a with a key fact about the altitude. A one meter gain in elevation is the equivalent of 0.31 milligals addition. Now, before when we were talking about gravity, I said it was measured in gals, which means that let's let, applying it to this, if we have, if we go up one meter, we have a 0.31 milligals addition of gravity. Um, yeah, so altitude, you're moving away from the center of gravity. You have a positive um, gravity anomaly as, as it is it's very small because it is a milligal but it is um it is increasing as as you as, as you move up um another sort of gravity anomaly i know i said two but there, there there is a sort of um a third one it's called a booger anomaly um and this is this this is the sort of um theory that we need to account for mass um the final value of this of this Booga anomaly, this Booga gravity anomaly, um, must account for the extra meters of mass that's above sea level. So if we think we've got a mountain and part of it sticks out above, um, above the um, above sea level, uh, a ten meter gain in elevation um, is is up to one milligal. Um, subtracted so above sea level we've got this sort of negative um mass this booga man who who this anomaly is named after knew that the mass of a mountain would exert a gravitational pull on the mass of a plumb line um plumb lines are basically the cord that has the weight on the end of it i would totally recommend going and googling a a diagram of it as these these diagrams really perfectly explain it, um, but the, the they can basically determine the, the the verticality of the object and the center of gravity. Um, Buga in seventeen thirty five found that a mountain wasn't pulling its weight, and that less dense rock ran deeper than he thought. So yeah, I do have a diagram of a plane line in front of me, and it's very interesting. Um, I do really highly recommend going and I don't know printing one off or something. Um, the last form of indirect evidence we have for the structure of the Earth is ice to sea. Isostat this is a, this is a bit of a difficult concept, so I'll go I'll go I'll go slow. Isostatic sea level change is the result of an increase or decrease in the height of the land. Let me say that again. Isostatic sea level change is the result of an increase or decrease in the height of the land. Isostatic change is local change this isn't global change this is this is small scale this is local change um when the height of the land increases the sea level falls when the height of the land decreases the sea level rises this is you know the, the view that overall things need to balance each other out um strong negative gravity anomalies across mountain ranges indicate that rocks below them appear to be lighter than expected um, it's suggested that mountains made up of less dense continental crust are like icebergs. They're sinking down into the mantle until they're in a state of balance. They're in a state of equilibrium and they're supported by the denser rock in the mantle. So ISSD is basically, um, 
it's it's the, it's the action of trying to achieve balance. However, as I have just told you that, like most things in geology, there is there there's another side. Um, isotopy doesn't always achieve balance. Um, when this happens, we experience gravitational anomalies. This is what I was talking about earlier. Um, for example. There are strong negative gravity anomalies in Scandinavia. The continental crust extends further into the mantle than expected. Um, this is this happened as overloading of the the area by thick continental ice during the ice age during this this period of glaciation, uh, which caused the the crust to sink and the mantle to flow around it around where this ice was pushing our crust down. Um, the ice melted relatively quickly, which left the crust to undergo um, a process called isostatic rebound. Um, the evidence is shown by raised beaches that are perched just above our current sea level. However, um, you know, a bit of a sidetrack, um, our, our, our melting sea ice, we, we may see this sort of, you know, balance itself out. Yeah. We have covered 6.7, 6.6 and 6.5 in our OCR geology textbook. We've looked at the indirect evidence of the structure of the earth, direct evidence of the structure of the earth and of course just the composition of the earth. Um, this is all for the, for the first podcast. You know, I'm not going to overload it. Um, however, I will be uploading more. Um, these will be maybe bi-weekly uploads or weekly uploads, I haven't quite decided. But but yeah, um, hopefully you have found this useful. Again, um, I'm Ethan, your host. Um, if you do want to, to drop me a message, um, I'm sure I'll find a way to link my Instagram or I'll set up a website in which you can contact me on. So thank you for listening and I will see you all soon. Bye.